Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Our weekly roundtable is back and on the national front, the Democrats' agenda and Senator Manchin. A lot to unpack there at stake, voting rights and infrastructure. Also, Vice President Kamala Harris, her trip south of the border. On the international front, the G7 meeting in Cornwall in the UK and power struggles in Israel. A big change, or will it be big, is about to happen. Also, the latest on the Israeli-Palestinian war and south of the border elections in Chile and Peru. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Dr. Gerald Horn, and Jackie Goldberg. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated, so on Sojourner Truth. We work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. I'm Max Pringle with these headlines. Leaders from the group of seven industrialized nations are meeting today in Cornwall, England. The economy, trade, the pandemic, climate change are on the agenda. The leaders of the world's wealthiest democracies have announced they're set to commit to sharing at least one billion coronavirus shots with struggling countries around the world. On Thursday, the U.S. and the U.K. committed to sharing 600 million doses. More from Future Story News' Ollie Barrett. After official arrivals and a G7 family photo here in Cornwall, leaders will get down to business. Their first session today is called Build Back Better from COVID-19 and takes in economic recovery, inequalities, environmental issues and gender themes. Prince Charles will also meet with leaders and business chiefs to call for coordinated action on climate change. An evening reception will be hosted by the Queen with Prince Charles, Camilla and Prince William and Kate all in attendance. Heading into the summit, the UK and US have pledged between them to supply 600 million COVID vaccine doses for the rest of the world. Ollie Barrett, Cornwall. A bipartisan group of 10 senators say they've agreed among themselves to their own infrastructure proposal. It includes $579 billion in new spending as part of a $1 trillion total package. President Biden's initial plan called for $2 trillion in new spending to be paid for with a tax increase on the wealthy. The compromise bill, critically, does not include new spending for tackling climate change. Massachusetts Senator Ed Markey told MSNBC that an infrastructure bill without a climate change component isn't worth passing. We have to pass legislation that unleashes the wind and solar, all-electric vehicle, plug-in hybrid, a battery storage technology, transmission technology revolution that we know is out there. The senators said that changes could still be made, but call their tentative agreement a realistic compromise framework that would be paid for without any tax increases. Fire crews were battling a wildfire that started Thursday near Las Vegas. The fire quickly grew to more than 200 acres on Potosi Mountain. It's near the main highway between Las Vegas and rural Pahrump. A Clark County fire official says no structures were immediately in danger, no injuries were reported, and the cause of the fire was not immediately known. Forecasters have warned of excessive heat this weekend, with temperatures climbing above 110 degrees. 
The Trump Justice Department seized data from the accounts of at least two members of the House Intelligence Committee in 2018 as part of an aggressive crackdown on leaks related to the Russia investigation and other national security matters. That's according to a committee official and two people familiar with the investigation. The New York Times reports that the Department of Justice prosecutors subpoenaed Apple for the data, the records of at least 12 people connected to the intelligence panel were eventually shared, including Democratic Committee Chairman Adam Schiff and California Congressman Eric Swalwell, who was the second member. Swalwell told CNN that the revelation shows the Trump administration abused its authority to target political opponents. This isn't really about me or Chairman Schiff. This is about everyday Americans you know, who don't want to see their government uh, weaponized law enforcement against them because of their political beliefs. And I hope Trump supporters who fear Big Brother see that Donald Trump was the biggest brother we've ever seen. The records of aides, former aides, and family members were also seized, including one who was a minor. Apple informed the committee last month that their records had been shared, but did not give extensive detail. The committee is aware, though, that metadata from the accounts was turned over. This week marks the 40th anniversary of the first reported cases of HIV in the United States. The virus that causes AIDS has killed 700,000 Americans and more than 32 million people worldwide. And as Suzanne Potter reports, there was a struggle in those early years to get the government to take action. Rick Chavez-Spur is executive director of the nonprofit Equality California, a job he's about to leave to run for state assembly. He says Americans mustn't forget the terrible toll of this disease. I lost literally scores of friends to the disease and watched our government pretty much do nothing about it for over a decade. And so as I think about the 40th anniversary, I think we need to remember all the people that were lost. He adds the huge loss of life and perceived inaction by the Reagan administration motivated groups like Equality California to help elect leaders who would take the disease seriously, including President Bill Clinton and Senators Barbara Boxer and Dianne Feinstein. Today, HIV treatments make it possible for 38 million people worldwide to live with HIV, including 1.2 million Americans. For California News Service, I'm Suzanne Potter. And I'm Max Pringle. You're listening to Sojourner Truth on Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth, and it is our weekly roundtable, and we're going to start off on the international front of a group of seven uh, meeting now in Cornwall in the UK. Uh, So a lot to cover there. Uh, We're also going to be discussing what's happening on the national front um, with Manchin, the filibuster of voting rights, the uh, infrastructure and voter suppression, Kamala Harris's trip south of the border, and uh, also on the international front, what is going on um, in Israel? Uh, it looks as though there will be a change in government, but will it really change anything in Israeli government policy and also the latest on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict? Uh, what I'd like to do now is to welcome our Roundtable. It's been a while, so we're glad to have them back. I'd like to welcome Laura Carlson, Director of the Americas Program. She works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization. She is based in Mexico City, where she's a regular contributor to America's Updater 
foreign policy and focus counterpunch and several spanish language publications she's also a television host and commentator on globalization the drug war immigration and gender issues for various international news outlets laura welcome back thank you margaret it's great to be here Yes, and Jackie Goldberg, a governing board member for the Los Angeles School Board, District 5. She is a former member of the California State Assembly. Jackie Goldberg had previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council. Before being elected to the council, she served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie Goldberg, welcome back. Well, it's great to be back. Hello to everyone out there. Thank you so much. Dr. Gerald Horn, the Moores Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books. His most recently published book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. He's also the author of The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Dr. Horn, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. And Dr. Horn, we're glad to welcome our, our listeners in Houston, Texas, the station there now carrying uh, Sojourner Truth, so we'll be in your part of the world, <laughs> um, which we're very happy about. Okay, uh, before we go into our first round, uh, let us go to a clip on the G7 uh, from NBC News. I'm heading to the G7 then to meet with Mr. Putin to let him know what I want him to know. But before confronting that adversary, President Biden will embrace traditional allies today describing his mission. Strengthening the alliance, make it clear to Putin and to uh, China that Europe and the United States are tight. President Biden, under pressure to do more to address a global vaccine shortage, will announce that the U.S. has agreed to purchase 500 million doses of Pfizer's COVID vaccine to send around the world. The president hoping to rebuild ties after four years of former President Trump's America First agenda. His presidential trip packed four summits in eight days. His first stop here in the U.K., meeting with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson and gathering with G7 leaders representing some of the world's biggest economies before being hosted at Windsor Castle by the Queen. Then in Belgium, meeting with the EU and NATO, an alliance Mr. Trump threatened to quit. All of it before that one-on-one with Putin in Geneva that comes amid a rise in ransomware attacks, including those targeting America's food and gas supply that U.S. authorities believe came from Russia. We're not seeking conflict with Russia. We want a stable, predictable, predictable relationship. After serving as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and as vice president, President Biden is now hoping to deliver on his own vision for the world. All righty, there you go. And of course, uh, the G7, the group of seven meeting from June 11th to June 13th, uh, taking place, in, as I said, in the U.K., the participants will include leaders of the seven uh, G7 member states, as well as representatives of the European Union. Member states include the United States, the UK, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, and Japan. Expected topics of discussion include developing a response to the COVID-19 pandemic and climate change, but many fear that these Western world leaders will also use the occasion to launch new Cold War against China in particular and also Russia. 
in an opinion piece published in the Washington Post, President Biden said, quote, the U.S. must lead the world from a position of strength when confronting the harmful activities of the governments of China and Russia. In the article, President Biden urged the major democracies to offer a high standard alternative to China in supporting global development. President Biden and other world leaders are also expected to pledge 1 billion doses of COVID vaccines to global South countries on Friday as part of the campaign to vaccinate the world by the end of 2022. A day earlier on Thursday, June 10th, President Biden announced that the U.S. would donate 500 uh, million uh, doses of COVID vaccine with no strings attached. COVAX, the global vaccine sharing program, still remains underfunded and billions of doses short. Africa in particular, very, very short of the vaccine. Meanwhile, um, on the G7 uh, summit front, Hundreds of protesters have targeted uh, the venue to demand action on the climate, poverty, and also on COVID-19. And on Friday, June 11th, uh, officers said that they had arrested seven people. Extinction Rebellion said it expects approximately 1,000 protesters to make their way to St. Ives the town next to Carbis Bay uh, for the summit. That's where the summit is taking place. So, um, Laura Carlson, uh, let's start with you on this, because, you know, the headline of the New York Times is saying America may be back in Europe, but how much has really changed? And there seems to be relief on the part of the leaders of the G7 that they're dealing with a President Biden and not a Donald Trump, but there's still a lot of skepticism on the part of the leadership about how much Biden can really do, given his troubles uh, back in the United States. But among the population, according to a survey that was done, uh, Biden way more popular than President Trump uh, in the, uh, I think, about 72 percent positive as opposed to 34 percent for Donald Trump. So, Laura Carlson, your take on all of this and um, what may or may not change. Well, that's right. There is a lot of skepticism about the real changes. Undoubtedly, Biden will have a closer relationship with the leaders of the European Union, and there's a, a more respectful relationship than there was in the past. But the problem is, where will he take that leadership? What we're hearing is a lot of really Cold War, as we mentioned, bravado coming from Biden saying, we're back, the democracies will be confronting, you know, non-democracies, in particular references to Russia and China in the world, uh, even though there was that clip played that said he's not seeking conflict, he's clearly seeing this as a major competition and indeed as a conflict, a conflict in many senses. When he divides up the world and says that the developing world has to reject Chinese participation in the recovery, you know, to turn toward the Western countries, that's just one example of some of the major implications of creating this kind of division. Now, before the, uh, the start of the G7 today, he did sign a new Atlantic char Charter, which gets its name from the one signed by Roosevelt and Church Churchill, excuse me, with Boris Johnson. 
Uh, we don't know uh, the details on all of what's in that, but it does deal with those issues that you mentioned. One of the things that's concerning to me in terms, again, of how real changes will take place is that on the pandemic, even though there's a commitment to begin to donate those uh, 500 million doses to COVAX, which distributes them to where they're most needed, that still covers only 3% of the population, and it's still giving $3.5 billion to Pfizer. And meanwhile, there was not a mention in the news coverage of the charter or what's coming up so far of the waiver in uh, the trip production, the waiver of the intellectual property on, on the vaccine so that third world countries where it's greatly needed and have trouble with transportation distribution can begin to produce. The United States did come out in favor of the waiver at the WTO, but it's not at all clear how much they will actually be pushing the European Union, which is the major entity that's blocking the TRIPS waiver at this meeting of the G7. Right, and, and Jackie Goldberg, uh, a lot happening there. I mean, there was the quote-unquote special relationship between the U.S. and the U.K. And, and Boris Johnson not wanting to use the term special relationship, but clearly um, very concerned about trying to get a, a special trade deal with the United States, given what happened um, in relation to Brexit. But President Biden, who, by the way, is of Irish descent, really very concerned about what's happening with Northern Ireland and, and some tensions um, as a result of, of Brexit in Northern Ireland. So it's not uh, smooth sailing all around. I mean, people really are worried about, someone even said, well, what's going to happen if Donald Trump reasserts himself? Uh, so people are a bit wary, including uh, those leaders, about how much the United States is really back in the way that it was prior to Donald Trump, who reset things in a, in a whole other way. And then, of course, the expectations with the meeting uh, coming up with Vladimir Putin of Russia next week. Jackie Goldberg. Well, you know, I think probably <clears throat> one of the biggest issues they have to tackle is the climate change one. I heard yesterday... Yeah. Uh, a speech by the U.N. Secretary General saying that we're on the edge of the abyss, and when you're on an abyss, the next step is really kind of critical which, way, which direction you're taking. So I think that's going to become a, a bigger part of this, I hope, uh, because I do think we are really out of time uh, with those issues, and the G7 has to take not just a little tiny step forward. It needs to take a leap forward before that uh, meeting uh, about the global crisis uh, that's taking place in Scotland. So I think that, for me, that's what I'm watching for most. Um, I don't expect much big news come out of this G7, to be honest with you, unless they do take on climate change. They have not shown themselves in the past to be a very progressive force. Um, and I'm worried also about this vaccine business because they have not really figured out how they're going to get it into people's arms once they've decided to donate that because that is a major issue. What is the refrigeration possibilities for J&J uh, &J and what are the needs? They're much more than just refrigeration for both Moderna and Pfizer. So 
we're, we're not out of the woods even if they donate a lot of doses because you've got to be able to get them into arms. Right, and uh, Dr. Gerald Horn, uh, it's interesting that even a mainstream press, I, I don't remember if it's the New York Times, Washington Post, they're talking now about Russia no longer being the major adversary of the United States, but China. So although China is not <laughs> clearly at the summit, China clearly is on everyone's mind. And for Germany, they're concerned about not really making the relationship with Russia uh, too contentious because they're um, getting gas, that gas line um, from Russia to Germany. Uh, moving forward. And then in relation to, to China, um, Germany sells a lot of cars uh, to China. So people are worried perhaps about some of the Cold War mentality that is being referred to in relation to China in particular, but also to Russia. And then um, the, the question has been posed, if the G7 are referred to as a club of industrialized post-war allies, if it is outdated. Uh, we do recall that Russia joined in 1977, and it was called the G8, but then it was kicked out in 2014, uh, given the situation on the Ukraine-Crimea uh, border. And this year, apparently, there are four guests um, from the Global South, I guess one could say, well, not all of them considered Global South, but India, Australia, South Korea, and South Africa are guests. Dr. Horn, your thoughts on G7 this year? Well, the G7 is obviously outmoded. It has become outmoded because of the rise of China. Not having this important player at the table is clearly ridiculous and dysfunctional. And the press coverage also reveals the emptiness of the corporate media. What I mean is that the meeting yesterday between Prime Minister Boris Johnson and President Biden was just an example of how the United States seeks to, in the near future, use Britain as a hammer against the European Union from which Britain has withdrawn in case the EU decides not to go along with Washington's new Cold War. That is to say that Britain is being recruited as a sidekick to the United States as it seeks to confront Russia and China, and London apparently will play along with this farce. As you suggested, the European Union is hedging. I don't think you have to be an oracle to recognize that there is a distinct possibility of a Republican Party comeback in November 2022 and November 2024, and that will then lead to the resurgence of Trumpism, which means that the European Union would once again be subject to insult and disregard. Uh, you are correct to suggest also the economic interests of Germany in terms of the China market. And for the European Union, I'm not sure if there's a palpable difference between playing number two to Washington or playing number two to Beijing. You also see the vacuousness of the corporate media reportage with regard to this upcoming summit with Russia. It's apparent that what Mr. Biden wants to do is entice Russia away from Beijing, and he will try to use uh, sticks and carrots, mostly sticks. That is to say that there will be a possible rearming 
of Ukraine against Russian forces, not to mention recruiting the Baltic republics that were formerly part of the Soviet Union against Russia, particularly Lithuania. I think at the end of the day, we have to recognize that this dilemma that Washington faces in terms of the rise of China is mostly of its own making. It's a direct outgrowth of the 1972 trip of Richard M. Nixon, U.S. president, to China to effectuate an anti-Soviet entente with Beijing, leading to massive foreign direct investment into China, creating this juggernaut. And in a certain sense, it reminds me of the war in Vietnam, where a U.S. military leader once said that the United States forces had to destroy a village in order to save it. In some ways, with this deal with China going back decades, the United States decided that to preserve U.S. hegemony, they had to destroy U.S. hegemony, basically by cutting this deal with uh, China, which leads us to what was passed this week, uh, the formerly named Endless Frontiers Act, that now has a new name, is $250 billion that the United States will direct to private industry in order to compete more effectively with China. We know that the rhetoric from Washington historically has been that there should not be an industrial policy, that you should let the so-called free market determine investment. Of course, the military-industrial complex contradicts that, but that was the line. But right now, in order to compete with China, you see the United States having to become more like China by developing a state-directed industrial policy, and that in itself exposes the dilemma that Washington now faces. Yeah, one other quick thing, Dr. Horn, on, on this same point. Um, you know, there's some reports that, well, you know, Russia, in a way, is a neighbor of, you know, Europe, places like Germany, et cetera, uh, while for the United States, China is the neighbor, and that perhaps the those in Europe are less concerned, as the Biden administration seems to be, about uh, China. But it's, it's very, very clear that the battle for the preeminent um, economic power in the world um, is on, and with the United States trying to hold on, but much of the world really looking at China as the winner of that round. Uh, just a quick comment, Dr. Horn. Well, you are correct, and certainly Germany and a good deal of Europe is dependent upon natural gas from Russia, and they also know what we can see, that the United States is willing to confront Russia to the last European, and the Europeans would have to be chumps to go for that deal, although you can't rule it out. Right. Okay. On that note, what we're going to do, we're going to take a short station break and coming up, we're going to continue our international uh, discussion uh, focusing on Israel, Palestine, the whole, the, the Middle East region and all of the implications of what's happening now in Israel with, it looks like a change in government and also the recent uh, war, the Israeli-Palestinian war. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
Friday, and that is uh, the great late Bob Marley, Burden and Looting. This is Margaret Prescott, host of The Journal. If you are a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us on Facebook, and also check out our website at sotrueradio.org. We have a great community uh, calendar, lots of other stories that we don't uh, can't possibly get to all of them on the air and our handle on instagram and twitter at so true radio and we're also nationwide and worldwide on soundcloud and um nationally we'd like to give a shout out to our soundcloud listeners in the great state of ohio across the state of ohio and internationally we would like to give a shout out to our soundcloud listeners in ireland uh, it is our weekly roundtable, and our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, and Dr. Gerald Horn. Uh, what we'd like to do now is to turn our attention to what is happening uh, in Israel and also the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. On Sunday, June 13th, Israel's parliament will vote on whether to approve a new governing coalition that could end the 12-year regime of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. On Tuesday, June 8th, Israeli Parliament Speaker Yariv Levin announced the vote will take place during a special session on June 13th. The 120-seat Knesset will vote on whether to approve a new and diverse coalition that consists of eight parties from distinct backgrounds, and I will say, put diverse in quotes, the new coalition will be sworn in the same day it is approved should it win the 61 votes it needs. If successful, the vote would represent the political end of 71-year-old Netanyahu, um, a right-wing war hawk friend of Donald Trump who has overseen um, what has been happening, including the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, ongoing conflict, and um, violation of Palestinian human rights. Um, without political immunity, Benjamin Netanyahu would also lose legal protections as he is faced with indictments on corruption charges. I think his wife is as well. The geopolitical implications are significant. The coalition that could replace Netanyahu's government includes the Ram Party, which would be the first Arab party to be part of an Israeli government ruling coalition. This could be, some say, a game changer for the self-declared Jewish state in a predominantly Arab neighborhood uh, region. On June 7th, Israeli police blocked a planned march by Jewish nationalists through Palestinian neighborhoods of Jerusalem after a similar parade last month played a key role in building the tensions that led to the latest um, Israeli-Palestinian uh, war, greatly impacting uh, Gaza in the last past week. Security officials have expressed alarm at a rise in incitement and hate speech from voices on the far right who are angered and proposed angered that the proposed government while headed by a uh, right wing far right nationalist uh, Naftali Bennett includes Arab and left wing politicians. The impact of Israel's war has been devastating on the Palestinian people in Gaza, meanwhile, especially children who are at, continuing to experience serious uh, physical and 
uh, mental health. They're suffering from PTSD alongside systemic poverty. Uh, the poverty rate in Palestine um, stands at 25%, according to the World Bank and the United Nations. Among youth, the poverty rate stands at 56 one of the highest youth poverty rates in the world, 95% of 150 children interviewed by Save the Children displayed symptoms such as depression, hyperactivity, aggression, and preference uh, for being alone. And of course, the deaths in the recent round have tilted more uh, to the Palestinians. 256 Palestinians were killed, including 66 children, 13 Israelis were killed, including uh, two children. Uh, so what's next uh, for um, Netanyahu, for the Israeli government, before our panelists weigh in? Let's do a short clip from U.S. News and World Report. Israel's longest-serving prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has become a master in the art of political survival. Israel's longest-serving Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, has become a master in the art of political survival, skills being put to test as his grip on power loosens. The Israeli opposition leader, Yair Lapid, has announced his success in forming an eight-faction coalition that would end Netanyahu's 12-year tenure. But this agreement still needs to be approved by Parliament in a vote that is expected to take place early next week. Until then, the Prime Minister is expected to continue his attempts to get any lawmakers to defect, so Lapid does not have the 61-seat majority needed in Parliament. Netanyahu's supporters are still hopeful. The coalition members span the full spectrum of Israeli politics, from the right-wing nationalist Naftali Bennett to the secularist and centrist Yair Lapid and to the Arab Islamic Mansour Abbas. The parties have little in common politically, but are all united in their common desire to replace Netanyahu. Beyond losing his role as leader of Israel's government, the prime minister faces perhaps an even greater threat, an ongoing trial on charges of bribery, fraud and breach of trust, charges he denies. If he is ousted, Netanyahu would not be able to push through changes to basic laws that could give him immunity. All righty. So, uh, Jackie Goldberg, we're actually going to start with you because, you know, I've seen uh, various articles saying, well, nothing really, not much is going to change in terms of Israeli foreign policy, certainly in relation to the Palestinians. But your assessment on the situation on the ground and, and what this could potentially mean and the, and the broader impacts as well. Well, I think the most important thing you can say about it is is that there is a broad, broad coalition from right to left, including uh, the uh, Arab party, that Netanyahu is is not making Israel safer, but is not is making Israel less safe. And I think that's what's really going on. Now, what do we have in this group? I think people do not need to do not need to expect miracles nothing big is going to change immediately however one thing to be very important to understand is is that uh naftali bennett only has six seats in the knesset that means he is not going to rule from a powerful place and it means that the uh liberal uh yesh atid and labor and meretz and blue and white which are center left and left wing parties they have many more seats than Bennett has. They will be able to hold him. They will get 
They will get uh, ministries. So there will be some change. The biggest change will probably be that it will be much harder for there to be a new uh, settlements. Not because Bennett doesn't support settlements. He may support se- new settlements more than Netanyahu, but because he will not be able to do it because each of the two, Yeshatid and Bennett, have vetoes over the other. That's very important. Probably the biggest pr- change is to include Ra'am, an Islamic party, uh, that means, for example, uh, all of those folks like uh, in the Negev Desert who live in those villages that have never been recognized will now have a voice asking them to be recognized. The Arab issues will now be inside the ruling coalition and not outside. That's useful. But probably the biggest reason this is happening is, is because almost all the parties in Uh, Israel know that they are losing the support of American Jews overwhelmingly by Netanyahu's behavior, particularly in this last bombing, carpet bombing of Gaza, changed attitudes of just unbelievable numbers of Jewish people who believe that that was an overreaction, that it was detrimental to the safety of, 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 of Israel. So I think, basically, we don't know what's going to happen in days, but we do know one thing. It's an opportunity for Israel to look at changing its direction, and that is the first time in 12 years that will be true. That's the importance of this. We also think it might be an opportunity for Biden to see a reason to change the United States' overwhelming support for Israel, no matter what Israel does. Israel needs to be held accountable for what it does to Palestinians. I do not think this change will lead to a two-party solution. That's not an agenda. But, and I don't know how long this will last because it's a very fragile coalition. But I do think it is critical because it is saying that the Israeli people as a group, all the parties practically, including Netanyahu's party, believe that Netanyahu is a disaster for Israel to continue. And, and that is a step forward, however measured and small. Right. Thank you, Jackie Goldberg. Actually, Dr. Cheryl Horn will go to you uh, on this um, because there's been some talk about Arabs living within Israel, the borders of Israel itself, and fighting, street fighting going on between Arabs and uh, Jewish um, Israelis, and some even referring to it as civil war in, in places such as Tor, the Israeli government has had to send in troops, you know, et cetera, and the peace movement in Israel making its voice uh, known particularly after the disaster of the recent, uh, it seemed like it was practically car- uh, carpet bombing of uh, Gaza. And by the way, the uh, what people are calling the ag- aggression is continuing. I mean, arrests are still being made, uh, some very, very recently, of uh, some high-profile uh, Palestinians that many are saying will just kind of you know, uh, create even uh, more tension. And then there's the reaction around the world. There were massive protests of thousands of people on the streets in the UK, London in particular, in San Francisco. Uh, They managed with the help of the uh, Longshore Workers Union uh, to turn away um, an Israeli ship and shut down the port for a while. So, Things seem to be shifting here. So, Joe Horn, uh, your comments um, 
and, and thoughts on that. Well, certainly there's a growing rift between Israel and its patron in Washington, D.C. You see this with regard to the credible reports emerging concerning Israel, a sovereign state, leaking sophisticated U.S. military technology to China, which it seems to me makes sense because the Israeli foreign ministry reads the newspapers just like we do and recognizes that China is in the passing lane, so obviously they should try to get on China's good side. But that's obviously not going to be very pleasing in the White House. Likewise, the U.S. administration is very much interested in renewing this Iranian nuclear deal, not only because it will allow, once again, a pivot towards China, but also given the fact that Britain, France, and Germany were involved on the ground floor in negotiating this deal, reentering the deal will help to sway those capitals and those nations as well, once again, hopefully for the United States' point of view, to make them more uh, pliable with regard to pivoting towards uh, China in a united front. And then uh, Israel has further alienated Turkey, a member still in good standing of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. The rhetoric uh, coming from Ankara has been quite heated, And it's well known that Ankara has had a privileged relationship with Hamas, the major force on the Gaza Strip, which brings us to the vaunted Abraham Accords negotiated by the 45th U.S. president in September 2020, which was supposed to mean a new departure with regard to Israel-Palestine, supposedly isolating a Palestinian self-determination as these countries, which really were not at war with Israel, including Morocco and United Arab Emirates, would somehow make peace with a nation with which they were not at war. But in fact, it's backfired. It's led to further disgruntlement, particularly in Morocco, uh, which has seen demonstrations lately, not to mention complicated relationship with this Mediterranean neighbor, uh, speaking of Spain. And then in terms of the backfiring of an overall strategy, You see this with regard to what's happened in recent decades with Israel seeking to bolster Hamas as a counterweight against secular Palestinian forces, particularly the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Well, obviously, that's not worked out very well, as Hamas was able to launch rocket after rocket into Israel itself, inflicting damage. Its underground tunnels in the Gaza Strip have yet to be totally dismantled which does not bode well for the future security of Israel. Right. Thank you, uh, Dr. Horn. And actually, Laura Carlson, we'll call on you to help us to do a kind of an overlap here between the international front and the national front, because Vice President Kamala Harris, was south of the border making some very controversial uh, comments uh, when she was in Guatemala. And also, there seems to be a bit of a shift happening south of the border with the elections in um, Peru, most recently in Peru, and just a few weeks ago in Chile. So I wondered if you would like to comment on that. You might want to also comment, of course, on the uh, previous discussion in terms of what's happening Uh, in Israel as well. Uh, Laura Carlson. Yeah, just very briefly on Israel, because I agree with comments of my colleagues. You know, it's it's clear 
that it had come to a point where Netanyahu was a political liability to absolutely everybody, pretty much. His own personal ambition of staying out of jail, which he basically only had two choices, prison or power, um, had taken over most all of his uh, thinking in many ways, and the launching of that offensive really eroded the base of support, including the financial base of support of Israel. So this allowed them to put together this uh, this coalition, but it's a very, very volatile and violent situation. I think it will be approved on Sunday, uh, but we'll just have to see how long it lasts. And again, I agree with Jackie that the actual the issue that there are that there is representation for the first time of Arab interests and the certain left interests is an important step forward, too. But we have to underline the role of the Palestinians themselves, really. I think we've lost Laura for a, a, a second there, so she will rejoin us. But meanwhile, uh, just uh, moving forward here to the national front, first of all, um, Dr. Gerald Horn, before we get into what's happening with D.C., your thoughts on Kamala's visit, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, um, south of the border. Well, I urge the Biden and Democratic supporters in the United States not to take seriously some of the comments she made in Guatemala uh, concerning urging people in Central America not to come to the United States, because with the dire situation we're facing right here in the United States, we should not rule out the possibility that as in the 19th century, there will be an attempt by many in this country to find a site of exile. I've been talking to people, quite frankly, about that already, given the upcoming uh, November 22 elections and November 2024 elections, and we cannot rule out the possibility that uh, there will be uh, an attempt to seek exile in Mexico, for example, which had been a pattern up until the beginning of the 20th century. I would also point out the recent decision where the courts in the United States said that temporary protective status, which is now enjoyed by uh, many immigrants who countless submission, does not <coughs> prepare the way for a green card. Now, I would urge those in our audience who are immigrants not to see that as a final determination. You should know that there are immigration clinics at major law schools and many law schools across the country, including in New York, Los Angeles, Houston, and elsewhere. And you should consult with the law professors and students at these clinics because there are people with temporary protective status who have lived in the United States for decades, have died in the United States, and therefore they should not take seriously some of this anti-immigrant rhetoric uh, that has been coming out of uh, Washington, D.C. and coming out of Vice President Harris unfortunately, during her recent visit to Central America. Right. Thank you, uh, Dr. Horn. I hope we will get back to you on the, the last round on D.C. But we, ha we do have Laura Carlson back. So, Laura, just continue your point, please. Yeah, that was weird. All of a sudden, I was I was talking to myself <laughs> there. But I'll go ahead and yeah. move on. The point at the, of, of Israel is that the siege is continuing, even though the bombing hasn't stopped with those terrible human costs that you mentioned, and also that it really was international solidarity that put the spotlight on, on the egregiousness of this offensive and that actually did weaken Netanyahu. That, along with Palestinian resistance, was a major point in, what, in the changes that are happening now. Now, 
when Kamala Harris went to Guatemala and stood up and said, do not come, uh, it caused a huge wave of criticism throughout Latin America, in Guatemala, in Mexico, where she then went after the Guatemala visit. And the point was that if she, number one, did not recognize in those statements that the right to asylum is, in fact, an international right, there was, even though she was supposed to be looking at root causes, there was no recognition of how the United States has and continues to contribute to those, rec- to those root causes and why people are leaving, or of the direness. It, to say do not come is as though they just woke up in the morning and said, well, should we go visit grandma or something today? You know, they're coming, many are having to leave in the middle of the night because their lives are threatened or because their homes were flooded out by hurricanes that are caused directly by climate change. So none of these factors really figured into it. And as well, she's supposed to be putting together a map of root causes to create a new Central America plan. And again, there's no recognition that uh, what Biden did in 2014 with uh, private sector investment in mega projects, with border enforcement, is actually the cause of why things are so much worse now in 2021. Uh, So we see the Biden administration with these anti-immigrant messages and actions, despite having said that they would dismantle what the Trump administration did. And we also see them repeating many of the errors in the past. Then in the Mexico meeting, again, um, we had a number of of, uh, messages that there would be a new relationship. But we are also seeing, again, an enforcement, uh, uh, an emphasis on enforcement. There were some 179,000 people apprehended at the border, and the figures just came out that the United States sent back 95% of unaccompanied children when there was a promise that the priority would be put on family reunification and non-separation. And at the same time, Mexico has huge numbers, and they actually boasted about this with the visit of Kamala Harris in terms of Central Americans that they are deporting as well. So they're leaving these people with no options, um, and, and unfortunately, there's little real change in the policies from what was so harshly criticized by Joe Biden himself under the Trump administration. Right. Um, Laura Carlson, I'm afraid we are going to have to hold comments on the elections, the Chile and Peru elections. There's there's a shift happening there because we do want to touch a bit on uh, what is happening in in, in D.C. And Jackie Goldberg, we're actually going to go to you because uh, Donald Trump may think he's the president. He's not. But some are beginning to wonder if Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia is the president, given the outsized role, or acting like he is, given the outside role he is playing in derailing uh, the agenda of uh, the Biden administration. I mean, a, a lot of people are quite upset by that op-ed that he published, opposing the For the People Act, 
uh, having to do with voting rights, H.R. 1, which passed the House in, in March, and, uh, you know, speaking out against it. And, uh, you know, then there's the question of the filibuster, and he's, uh, you know, where does he stand in all of this? But it seems as though voting rights, as well as the infrastructure, and even extending the child tax credits, which are very popular, being paid uh, beginning in, in the middle of July to families, um, that, to, you know, Joe Biden wants to extend that uh, going into the end of 2025, 2026. So there's a lot at stake here. Uh, Jackie Goldberg, your thoughts on um, the mansion mess, as Dr. Horn referred to it. Well, you know, uh, it, you know, Manchin uh, is getting a tremendous amount of attack from the Koch Policy Group, uh, you know, Americans for Prosperity. They have a video series along with ads crafted by the organization. The network specifically calls on grassroots supporters to write him every day an email. Uh, they've launched, uh, launched a website titled West Virginia Values, which calls him to be, quote, the voice of West Virginia needed in D.C., reject Washington's partisan agenda. So there's a lot of activity about this going on. This is not just Manchin making this up all himself. Uh, they tell him not only to oppose the filibuster, but also to impose uh, union-friendly PRO Act, uh, Biden's infrastructure plan, uh, and everything else. Uh, so basically what we have is the need to elect more uh, Democratic United States senators. I think you can rely on Manchin for absolutely anything. But remember, I think it's important to say that Manchin is not alone. He's taking all the flack. But believe me, there are other Democrats who are saying, no, I don't want to end the filibuster, or no, I don't want to do things with 50 votes, or no, no, no. But they're being quiet and letting Manchin do the speaking for them. Even if Manchin were to change, I do not believe there are votes to change the filibuster right now. I really don't. Uh, I've been counting my n n names that I know, and I don't believe there are 50 votes to, to change the filibuster at all, even remotely. So I'm, I'm thinking that you're going to have to have an equal uh, uh, opposition to this because the polling in West Virginia shows that the West Virginians overwhelmingly support Biden's program. I mean, that's the thing that's so weird about this is Manchin is only following people being pushed on him by the Koch uh, Foundation. Uh, and, and they really are spending a lot of money on this, the Americans for Prosperity. So they have a radio ad. They're doing all kinds of things to, to prop him up, and I do not believe he's going to change. Uh, I think that the 22 elections, we need to uh, elect more United States senators uh, who are Democrats, and so that he and... Uh, and others like him are, are no longer able to command the power that they currently have. Right. Thank you, uh, Jackie Goldberg. Dr. Horn, a quick comment from you. We just have about a minute and a half, I'm afraid. Well, I don't think we can rule out what Congresswoman Liz Cheney mentioned when she was ousted from leadership, which is that a number of members of Congress are afraid for their personal safety. They are for, yeah. they're afraid that if they don't vote a certain way, that they might get killed. That helps to shed light on why there is not a commission to investigate January 6th, for example. And then look at this morning's newspapers about how the Trump administration was actually surveilling minor numbers of Democratic Party leaders' families who were minors. 
and th- this is uh, obviously something that is beyond the pale. And I think we need to realize that GOP has determined that it will not lose any more elections, which helps to explain voter suppression in Georgia and Texas and Florida. And that in any case, uh, Senator Manchin, uh, he comes from a state that Mr. Trump won by 39 points, uh, whatever polls might say. But having said that, uh, I salute the Reverend William Barber, who was leading a march in West Virginia within coming days in an attempt to put pressure on Senator Manchin. Likewise, I think we can put pressure on Senator Sinema in Arizona, who's from a state that is quite more progressive than West Virginia. Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, Reverend Barbara, uh, uh, one of the people with the Poor People's Campaign, uh, the joint coordinator of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, and they, yes, will be heading to West Virginia. I'm afraid we are out of time, and sadly, but um, hopefully you all will be back next week, next Friday, when we'll uh, continue our weekly roundtable. And uh, we, we just have to go. So today, so I'd like to thank all of our panelists and our audio engineer, Buzz, our assistant producer, Romero Funes. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. Uh, please stay tuned for Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman coming up next. If you'd like a copy of today's show, for Sojourner Truth, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at one 800 7350230. Go online to Pacifica Radio Archives.org. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, and y'all please stay well and safe. Now and all-